Mm. To hold space is a terminology that's used a lot in mental health. You're creating a space where somebody can really wholly express themselves. In session, I'm trying to be as present as I possibly can to understand their experience. Going to see a therapist is exactly the same as going to a doctor for a physical health problem. It's just with regards to our mental and our emotional well-being. Hi, I'm Charlotte and I'm a clinical psychologist. Hi, I'm Kristen and I'm a holistic psychotherapist. Mm. I'm Pia Rose. You're listening to Get That Bread, a show highlighting a variety of occupations, exploring what's involved and identifying the skills that are necessary for success. In this coronavirus lockdown environment, it is more important than ever that we check in with each other, with our friends, with our families, with our co-workers. But let me ask you this. When was the last time you checked in with yourself? Today, we have a double episode. We are speaking with Charlotte, a psychologist based in London, and Kristen, a psychotherapist based in Sydney. Welcome, ladies. <laughs> Thanks, Pia. Thanks for having us. Thanks yes. for being on the show. Okay, cool. So Charlotte, let's start with you for our two for one special. Can you please explain to me what is your job exactly? Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist and I suppose psychology refers to the scientific study of the human mind and behavior. There are loads of different branches to psychology. So educational psychs and occupational psychologists, but I am a clinical psychologist and my main uh, purpose really is to work with mental health problems and the aim of my work is to reduce psychological distress and improve the psychological well-being of people that I work with. And Kristen, how does that differ to your job? What, what do you do exactly? So I am a holistic psychotherapist um, and very much concerned with healing, with growth, with transformation, looking at it, uh, the human from a holistic perspective. So your um, emotional, relational, spiritual, psychological, existential um, uh, parts of being a human. So it is taking very much a holistic um, approach and looking at both the conscious and subconscious mind, which I find incredibly fascinating, mm. as you will discover. Yeah. <laughs> I think I understood three words of what you said. I understood every single one. It must be a, it must be a psychology thing. Yeah, you guys are speaking another language. <laughs> what does holistic mean? Look, I think um, holistic is an appreciation that we're not just a brain, you know, operating a robot. That you know, I think we often live from the neck upwards. We, you know, we're so cerebral these days. We we think so much, but there needs to be recognition that our bodies store so much wisdom that we have the capacity for healing through accessing our bodies through breath work, through mindfulness through connecting into our um, emotions, our feelings in a way that we're really um, accepting of them. And, you know, I have a spiritual, um, I guess, essence in my work as well. So um, understanding that we have a journey, a path, and it's very unique to us and respecting that and not expecting everybody to be doing the same things at the same time, because we're also very different and we're on our own path. So it's, it's, it's taking that into consideration as well as, you know, our minds. 
I'd like to kind of complement what you've said, Kristen, and say that very often, and I can only speak from kind of services in the UK, where we have our national health service and the model that we use in the service is very medicalized. So it's very problem specific. So very often people will come to services in the NHS with a label or a diagnosis, which I think is can be quite limiting for people because it's almost expecting individuals to fit into certain boxes. So, oh, here's your diagnosis of depression, go and receive some treatment for depression. Um, here's a diagnosis of anxiety or of an eating disorder, go to a specialist service to treat that. But I think what Kristen is saying is that actually we are more than a label. And the way that we both work, it sounds like, is that we see the individual as a whole, which is the holistic rather than just the diagnosis that is often kind of follow someone through an NHS service to access treatment. Wonderful. I think that's a really great point. So could you just again explain the difference between psychology, psychotherapy and the other branches of mental health support? This is a, it's a question I get asked all the time. So um, what's a psychiatrist? What's a psychologist? What's yeah. a psychotherapist? Yes. What's a counsellor? What's a social worker? Because we're all under this mental health umbrella. Mm. Um, is slightly different obviously psychiatry sits very much on the outskirts of this as a medical profession so that's a doctor you're prescribing medication whereas i feel like the other ones can all have um you know they're all intermingled they're all you know very much um there are a few core elements that are the same and i think it is quite a confusing thing um even when you're in the profession because i always find it that you're using different techniques and modalities but they span across each one obviously you've got empathetic listening you've got um, you know, this, this deep sense of understanding your client and that spreads across all of these roles, but each one will be slightly different. Essentially, the core condition is that we do very, very similar work. We just have slightly different models of training um, and kind of backgrounds that maybe take us to working in mental health. But essentially, it can be a bit of a minefield because there are so many different job titles for essentially yes. what is a caring profession and wanting people to be well and to feel well within themselves. So with psychology, psychotherapy, all of the other branches of mental health care, what is the goal with your client or patient? Um, I think it's really, really unique um, to each client. So um, I usually discuss this in my first session, what their goals are for therapy. They may come in feeling um, really anxious. They're wanting to understand where their anxiety is coming from and also how to manage it. They may want to be getting over a divorce or how to understand strategies to co-parent or um, so I specialize in relationships. So, um, you know, it's very much defined in the initial session, but your goal is um, uh, to facilitate change, to um, to really have a deep understanding of yourself. And, and interestingly, there's a, a misconception that we tell people what to do and we, we give them the answers. But the real goal, particularly for me in my role, is to facilitate their own understanding and to make their own decisions because a lot of people come in wanting to outsource their decisions, but that effectively provides no um, ongoing long-term, you know, growth and development. So it's about really exploring um, how to make their own personal change and healing. So Dr. Charlotte, can you please tell me why did you choose psychology and how did you ultimately get here? Oh, well, that's a good question. I have always been really interested in other people's behavior. I uh, come from a very, very large family. I've got three siblings. And I suppose even when I was tiny, I took the observer role and would always be really fascinated by what they were doing and just kind of interested in my own behavior and my mind, really. 
Um, I'm also quite an empathic and very sensitive person. So I guess I kind of put those two things together. And since the age of about 14, 15, I always knew that psychology would be the profession for me. I suppose I'm a bit of an anomaly where I've always known. Um, so I suppose decisions that I've made career-wise have always been, will this get me one step closer to my goal of becoming a clinical psychologist? So I studied psychology for four years. Um, and before I did that, I did a bit of volunteering in charitable organizations. So I worked an amazing cancer charity called Maggie's whilst I was studying and then I finished my four years and worked as an assistant psychologist in a specialist trauma service which has always been I suppose the, the specialism that I've wanted to end up in. So I did that for two years whilst I was applying for my clinical doctorate and that's a three-year degree where you get your qualification of kind of doctorate in clinical psychology. And I'm currently working in the homeless sector so I'm working in homeless hostels treating clients with trauma histories and kind of comorbid problems so anxiety depression and substance misuse I'm driven by kind of doing something for social inequality and very often we know that homeless people are the most disadvantaged within society so I've always kind of been drawn to doing what I can to support those who are more disadvantaged uh, I suppose overall I've been drawn to working within the field of trauma so there's a really high prevalence of trauma. And what I mean by trauma is kind of early childhood adverse experiences. So whether it's physical, emotional or kind of sexual abuse. And what about you, Kristen? Your path towards psychotherapy was a little different. Could you walk us through that? Sure. And I, I envy Charlotte because that sense of determination about what she wanted to do, I definitely did not have that. And I stumbled into a business degree and then went on to become a forensic accountant. So I just really wanted to wear a suit. That's all I kind of thought about when I was 16, <laughs> to be honest. And business just wear a suit when you do a business degree. So that's kind of how my thought processes were. So not very developed at that point. Um, yeah, stumbled into forensic accounting, which I found um, actually, you know, it was really interesting, challenging. I got my chartered accounting qualification and then moved to London. So um, consulted in a regulatory capacity in a lot of the major banks in London for a long time. And then had a complete sea change, moved to Edinburgh and started a charity, um, which was to promote health and fitness amongst kids in Scotland. So I was the trustee and, um, and managed that charity for about three years. And then I moved back to Sydney and had to do a lot of soul searching. And as part of that, I saw an amazing holistic psychotherapist in Sydney. And just that journey for me was so instrumental in, you know, really taking a, a long, deep look at, at the things I was doing in my life and, and if they were working for me or not. And, and as a result of that, um, to continue that kind of, um, I guess, that journey, uh, I started my psychotherapy postgrad. So very, very different to what I'd done before, but it's kind of more my soul's purpose now. I think accounting, you know, it, it, it served its purpose and it was wonderful, but, um, but what I'm doing now is definitely, it's my passion. It's what I like reading about in my spare time. It's what I like doing. I've just been to India um, to do my um, yoga, breathwork, meditation, teacher training. So wanting to bring those elements into my practice because this breathwork is incredible and mm. it's that real link in our conscious and subconscious minds that, you know, so much healing and growth comes from that. So that's been my journey, which is a little left of field, but, um, but yeah, just such a rewarding, wouldn't change a single thing. So even if you don't know what you're going to do for your job, just stumble along, work it out, follow your heart, you know, be true to yourself and you'll hopefully end up in the right thing. 
I really admire both of you. You're both on opposite ends of the spectrum. On one hand, we've got someone who knew that she was born to do psychology and you knew it from the young age. And on the other hand, we've got someone who has experienced different professions and ultimately found their passion. And actually, it doesn't matter who you are and what you what path you've lived. You can always end up working in psychology. I work shoulder to shoulder again alongside lots of people who have got lived experience of mental health problems. There's a huge uh, push for working with peers. We don't discriminate in in the industry, and I think you can come from anywhere and have experienced mental health problems yourself and still be an absolutely amazing psychologist. Um, there's a really beautiful. Um, uh, a description called the wounded healer. And I feel like it's a really beautiful way to describe that people often go into this profession having this lived experience of pain and suffering and development. And, and I feel like you can really sit there with a client with such authenticity and really um, sit there in that space and create a wonderful um, space for healing because you've been in that same space and you've opened up. And, and for me anyway, I wouldn't sit there opposite somebody and just, and sort of explore anything that I personally didn't know um, was meaningful. So it's not just someone telling you what to do and, you know, you're really sitting in that experience with someone, which is just a really beautiful synergy to have when you're in it. If I love how we have this misconception that there are people out there with it all figured out. And I can get, I just want everyone to know nobody has anything figured Absolutely, out. Yeah. <laughs> along. We're trying to do our best. And if anyone says that they've got it worked out, they're lying. Liar. <laughs> if I say to someone, I'm a psychotherapist, the first thing is, Oh my God, can you read my mind? Yeah. And then the second thing is, Oh my God, are you analyzing me? And I'm yeah. like, Oh my goodness, I'm not. Someone said to me the other day, do you hold back from relationships because you worry that you're, you're analyzing them and you know they're worried about what they think about you? And I was like, no. So your sessions are not about analyzing the client, but rather helping the client to analyze themselves. To hold space is something, is a, is a terminology that's used a lot in, in mental health. You're creating a space where somebody can really wholly express themselves. As in session, I'm trying to be as present as I possibly can to understand their experience. So you're encouraging them to analyse and to be introspective and to think what's going on for me right now. And you have to be the container to hold the distress or the emotion or whatever's being brought to the room in a way that is non-judgmental and warm and empathic. Why would someone come to see you? Who are your clients and what do they generally come to see you and talk to you about? I suppose that's a bit of a tricky question to answer from the UK perspective in terms of working for the NHS because it depends in which service you're working in. Very often, as I was saying before, people will be referred to a specialist service based on a particular diagnosis that they may have been given. So if you're working in a trauma service, it's likely that someone will come to you and you would treat them for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder for example. Um, very similar if you're working in a specialist anxiety or a depression clinic, then it's likely that the people who come to you will have already that established diagnosis. Um, there are some specialist services within the NHS. There is also kind of secondary mental health where you have more generalized difficulties. Um, so that could be things like depression and anxiety, diagnosis of a personality disorder, 
I have specialized in relational health. So that's the relationship that you have not only with yourself, but to other people. So be it family members, um, friendships, romantic partners. I do couples therapy. So I guess anybody coming to me, a typical um, issue might be uh, going through a divorce. Um, yeah, as I said before, learning, you know, how to, um, to navigate through different relationship difficulties and maybe an issue with a mother or father. So quite a, a, a long-term strained um, family dynamic that um, someone wants to work on um, you know low self-esteem and then anxiety is really prevalent for me at the moment I feel like um, I'm dealing with um, anxiety with pretty much all my clients um, be that a reflection of our current you know global climate at the moment I'm not sure it seems um, yeah a coincidence that this um, sort of has skyrocketed in the last couple of months but yeah, I mean, I really, um, the relationship we have to ourselves, I feel like is our most fundamental relationship we have. Um, and everything else is, is, is a mirror of that um, in a lot of ways. So working on that understanding, acceptance, kindness, uh, that love we have for ourselves is um, quite a, a fundamental part of the work that I do. And it's the one that most people struggle with. We're our own worst enemies. We are mm. our biggest critics. And I think, you know, having a, a real focus on educating um, you know, I've got some younger clients and really reinforcing that sense of um, connection into yourself. It, it really paves the way for something, you know, uh, really meaningful um, along the way with all of your relationships. What are some of the most effective treatments for the main issues that your clients come to talk to you about? Interestingly, I think although Kristen and I work in different ways and might use different therapeutic or psychological models in the work that we do, time and time and time again, the research tells us that the most fundamental thing for a successful outcome in therapy is the therapeutic relationship. And so it doesn't really matter what clinical training we've had or what model we, I mean, it does because we work in an evidence-based way, but fundamentally it's a relationship that you build, the safety that you feel with your clinician, with your therapist in the room that is the vehicle for creating change within people. So we might use uh, approaches like cognitive behavior therapy or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, cognitive analytic therapy, schema focused therapy. There is CBT, EMDR, CAT. I mean, all of the different acronyms. Ultimately, it really just depends on what the individual wants to work on and what their goals are. But what we would be advocating for is that it's the strength of that therapeutic relationship that is the most important driver for people to really benefit from a psychological intervention or seeing a psychotherapist. Have you got any weird, wacky or interesting facts about the human mind? I have a good one if you'd like to hear it. Hit me. So I often work with people who uh, feel that there's a lot of shame or stigma around express, expressing emotion. Um, and so I have a really interesting fact that I tell them and seems to break down some of that stigma about showing emotion outwardly in terms of tears. So did you know, Pia, that there are three different types of tears? No, I didn't. So the first one is kind of a tear and water that's produced by the eye just to lubricate it. So it'll help you blink. The second kind of tear is water that's generated when you get something in it. You know, your eye waters and it's a natural response to try and get rid of the thing that's in the eye. And the third kind of tear is an emotional tear, which is generated from a feeling or an emotion. So happiness or um, typically sadness or stress or anxiety. 
and they've done some studies on the chemical makeup of the tears. There was a huge amount of adrenaline in the third type of tear. So that's the stress hormone that we feel when we're feeling really anxious, which means that it's your body's natural way of just trying to look after you and trying to calm and trying to release the excess adrenaline that you feel in your body when you're stressed and overwhelmed. How amazing is that? That's interesting. That's so cool. So you're so it's okay to cry. Your body is doing what it needs to do to let go of the stress, to let go of the distress that you're feeling. Honestly, it's just one of the most amazing facts that I've found out and people that I work with are always amazed by that. Yeah, so it's good for us. Just let it out. Just have a cry. No wonder we feel so good after we have a big old cry. Followed by a long nap. (laughs) (laughs) So we're saying that the third tier, the emotionally driven tier, is our body's natural release. I guess that also explains why and this has only happened to me twice. I've cried when I was angry. I was so angry, like furious, like raging beyond seeing red. I was a white hot (laughs) and I was crying. (laughs) A lot of people feel shame for crying or for getting upset if they're feeling distressed or, or overwhelmed or anxious. So it's just a real way of normalizing and saying, it's okay. We, it's your body's decision to do this for you it's looking after you let it take care of you the you know we were saying Kristen you were saying earlier the body is so important we often think from the neck up actually the body is doing what it needs to do to look after us as well so we need to bring it into therapy too and look after it my fun fact and my um my fascination with our subconscious mind because it is essentially running the show we think that we're conscious our conscious mind would be in charge but actually 95 percent of everything we do is subconscious so a few statistics we've got 90 billion nerve cells in our brains so we've got trillions of connection points which are called synapses um and the the human brain holds as much information as the internet did circa 2007 Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Um, You know, and we're bombarded with 2 million bits of data per second. And our conscious mind couldn't couldn't hold this and couldn't um, interpret and understand it. We'd kind of, you know, we'd go crazy. So our subconscious mind has absorbed every single thing that we've experienced from birth up until now. It remembers everything. It's got it all stored in there, but we don't have access to it. And interestingly, LSD is a bridge um, to our subconscious mind. So often, um, you know, so, so much research has been undertaken um, with the effects of LSD in our subconscious mind and opening up gates ways and um, certain memories um, coming back, access to words, access to information, which we don't have with our conscious mind. Um, And so much of our personalities, our values, um, we have those already um, there by two years old because we're absorbing so much information. So our little personalities, that's why, um, you know, being really mindful of what you're doing around children, when you think that they're not absorbing it, they really are. And that's developing you know, how we see the world, um, it's, it's developed when we're so young. So, um, and breath work, I think I mentioned earlier, is a really powerful way to get into that subconscious state because, you know, our subconscious, um, you know, it's the way that we breathe, bringing that level of consciousness to it, um, sort of, it, it bridges that gap. And I mean, I find it fascinating. It really it, is. I agree. It was a bit much for me, but it, um, <laughs> are you saying... Are you saying that everything we have experienced ever is stored, but we just can't access to it? 
What happens, it shapes our, our, the way that we see the world is shaped by our subconscious mind. So it doesn't, it doesn't interpret anything. It just filters in all the information, our experiences, what scared us, what's made us happy, what brings love, that all of those things are stored. So we begin to shape who we are based on that subconscious mind. So if we're having issues, recurring problems that we don't understand, it's often because we've developed these core sets of beliefs or, or values that, um, that are really shaping um, how we behave. So Charlotte, what would you say the key skills are that you would need to have? In this job so key skills for me would be just how you are generally interpersonally with others i think you can't uh underestimate the importance of just being alongside someone else so carl rogers talked about the core conditions of being warm and empathic non-judgmental and having unconditional positive regard for the clients that you work with I also think that a genuine sense of curiosity is really important. So being curious in a way that is non-judgmental and asking gentle questions and kind of getting in there with the client is really, really important. So being able to really put yourself in the position of someone else and having that ability to mentalize and to, to think, what is it like for this person in the room with me right now is one of the most fundamental things uh, that is, I, I suppose, really, really important for doing the work well. Can you summarize what do you love about this job? You know, being able to sit with somebody and have that trust and they're sharing, they're sharing often things they've never even spoken about to anybody else before and uh, uncovering and then integrating these experiences in their lives to, to allow them to have this, you know, this new way of, of living. That's a real privilege to, um, to have that that trust and it's a it's a very um you know it's a joint experience it's not me sitting there separate to them on their journey i feel very much integrated in that journey with them so you know you have those experiences all day every day and to be it can be quite a lot and it can be quite draining sometimes i feel like i've run a marathon at the end of the day or my muscles are aching because you know you're sitting there so intently focused and in an experience you can't you can't daydream for five minutes you're absolutely 100 percent on in that in that session with the person so um yeah it's incredibly rewarding to watch people grow to watch people change um to see that you've had a, a small part to play in 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 that change and growth is really um yeah it's really rewarding beautiful and something that I, as painful as it is to bring therapy to an end, actually the most rewarding thing is when they say, I don't need you anymore. Mm. Um, and I can go at this on my own. And they've internalized a little mini version of you within themselves. And they kind of hold on to that and say, oh, what would Charlotte think? Or, you know, I'll, I'll bring that forward. And I don't need to have my therapy sessions every week because I've learned through the vehicle of having that relationship with my therapist that I can do this for myself. Do you have any advice for someone who is thinking of working in mental health? I feel like if you want to get into this profession, you have to be prepared to really crack open yourself and to do the work yourself. It's not a job where you're sitting here as an expert. Um, you may know a lot, but I mean, for me personally, the more I know, the more I know I don't know about the human condition. And, you know, it's a case of really being committed to the process of your own journey, your own growth, um, understanding what your own limitations are, what you're, you know, doing that real kind of work yourself. So I would say that you would need to be prepared to go on that journey if you were wanting to work in mental health.
I'd agree. I think that's been a really important part of becoming the therapist that I am now is being able to be introspective and think about uh, me and myself in those ways. Um, another bit of advice would be test things out, get lots of volunteering opportunities, speak to people. Um, you might be one of these people that friends gravitate towards you and ask you to solve all your problems. Ask yourself, do you really want to do that for the rest of your life? <laughs> um, and you're certainly, if you're not uh, motivated by money, then this is definitely the career for you. Um, but it um, is a really worthwhile career and I'd highly recommend it. But I think as Kristen is saying, you know, be sure that it's the right thing for you because it can be draining. It can be exhausting. It can be, like you say, like you've run a marathon every day for 40 years of your career. But it is so worth it when the clients that we work with say to you, thank you, I don't need you. Um, yeah, going to go on this on my own. Yeah. Whilst there has been lots of improvement in how we've destigmatized mental health problems and our emotional well-being, you know, with lots of the campaigns around one in three people experience mental health, etc. I actually think that's probably not good enough. What we need to be advocating for is that four out of four of us have mental health problems or have mental health or have mental well-being. And going to see a therapist is exactly the same as going to a doctor for a physical health problem. You know, there might be periods of time where you've broken your arm and you might need to have your arm put in a cast or where you've got a virus and you need some antibiotics. Going to a therapist is exactly the same. It's just with regards to our mental and our emotional well-being. So there is no shame in going to speak to someone if you are experiencing anxiety or depression or um, want to kind of explore things for yourself a little bit more. And I think we've still got a long way to go to destigmatize it, but it's not one in four, it's four in four. We all have our emotional well-being to take care of and there is no shame at all in going to speak to someone about it. Well said. Done. Perfect. And that is a wrap. I actually do find you both incredibly inspiring. And um, oh, I, I, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for agreeing to do this with me because um, this is... Sister? Love you, big sis. But because uh, this is something that I have no knowledge about whatsoever. It's very clear that both of you are extremely passionate about it. 